And, and if you're not a Christian here, I want you to really think about what motivates you. What motivates you? What are you living for? Are you living for something that's lasting and eternal? Or are you living for fleeting things? Where's your hope? What motivates you? This passage that we're going to look at today, it's been called the crown jewel of the gospel. It's the crown jewel of the Christian faith. And yet we can become familiar with even crown jewels, right? I saw it was a funny interview with the queen, I think it was a couple weeks ago, the queen of England, sorry, we don't have a queen, so I need to explain that. So with the queen of England, and it was kind of comical because... They brought the crown out, and apparently the crown was made somewhere in the 1500s, and only three people are allowed to touch it with their bare hands. The Queen of England, the crown jeweler themselves, and I think the Bishop of Canterbury, who, who is the one who places the crown on the, the queen. And the, the people in the media were mocking or in, in aghast because the queen was just kind of treating the crown like it was something every day, like it was a hat. And, and they were like, oh, aghast. Oh, my goodness. How could she just kind of manhandle the crown? And, and they were shocked that she would take for granted the crown that symbolized the rule. Now, that's kind of silly because it's just a piece of metal. But we, we have this great privilege. We have the crown of the Christian faith, which is the grace of God. The crown jewel is the grace of God. And yet we kind of become familiar with it. And, and I want to make sure that as we begin this passage, we begin it appropriately with fresh eyes saying, wait a minute, let's behold the grace of God in a new way, in the way that the people in the island of Crete would have heard it when Titus was proclaiming the grace and when he was reading this letter to them. So let's read in Titus 2, verse 11 through 15. And so uh, because this short passage, I want to have you stand for the reading of God's word. We stand not out of just formality, but we stand to worship God, acknowledging that this is his word and we want to receive from him at the outset. Titus 2, 11 says, for the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us, to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness, and to purify for himself a people for his own possession, who are zealous for good works. Declare these things, exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no one disregard you. This is God's holy inspired word. You may be seated. Let's pray. Father, thank you for giving us such a short yet beautiful passage. God, thank you for the privilege of encountering and seeing your grace. Thank you that your grace has appeared to us. For all those who place their faith in you, thank you that we can say confidently, your grace has brought us salvation. Jesus, you have saved us. You've redeemed us. You've bought us back. And God, I pray that we would live for you in response. 
And God, for all those who are motivated by other things who do not yet believe in you, I pray that they would be motivated to receive your grace, to put their faith and trust in your grace. God, give me your Holy Spirit, I pray. I plead with you to give me your spirits that I might communicate your words. And God, give each and every one of us here your spirits that we would receive your words. God, without you, we... We're dull, we're thick. But God, with you, you make us alive. So I pray that you would make us alive to you, to your words. Would you inspire our souls with your favor? In Christ's name we pray, amen. Well, we have a friend who recently, I think two weeks ago or so, moved up to an area just north of where they draw the line for the Arctic Circle. That, for me, would be, I don't know, comparable to my idea of hell. I know it's terrible to say that, but I can't imagine being in a place that's that cold all the time. I don't want to move north of Mason-Dixon line, much less north of the Arctic line. And, and our friend just recently moved there, and I was shocked because it was actually warm a couple weeks ago. It was like in the high 70s there, and this week it's in the high 40s. And so you might think it's a little chilly here, but that's a little colder there. And she posted a picture of a bag of Lay's, uh, Lay's snack mix, and it was $24, actually $23.99. And she's like, I guess I'm not going to have chips when I'm up here. I'm like, one bag of chips for $24. And it's because it's so hard for crops to grow north of the Arctic Circle. It's very cold. It's difficult to grow. Now, imagine that you are a strawberry farmer. And you're, you're going to try to plant crops north of the Arctic Circle outside. And I don't mean in a greenhouse and don't get all geeky on me and say, well, you could do it technically. But no, I mean like go outside and you start trying to dig in the ground. The ground is permafrost. It's too hard to dig in. And, and how frustrating that would be if you're trying to dig into the ground. You're trying to plant these seeds. You're trying to get the strawberries that you are desperate to grow to grow and they won't. They, they, they might bloom or blossom for a month and then they will freeze and die, and they won't produce any fruit. It would be a frustrating venture. And, you know, I think for humans, when we try to produce fruit, when we try to do, live in a manner that's pleasing to God, we will find it imminently frustrating, worse than living north of the Arctic Circle, because you can't produce fruit on your own. You can't produce fruit on your own. You can't produce fruit by your own effort, by legalism, by, by trying to earn favor before God, by trying to earn worth before God. And it is a frustrating venture. Now imagine then that I go to this strawberry farmer and I said, you know what? I'm going to pay all expenses for you to move to Plant City, Florida, where they grow pretty much every strawberry I've eaten in the last year. I mean, if you look on the little labels, Plant City, Florida, and you drive through there and there's strawberry farms all over the place. Not a great place to visit unless you like strawberries, but if you love strawberries, it's the best place to be. And imagine that you paid, I paid for this man to, to move there. It would dramatically change his life. Not just would he be warm, but he'd be able to plant his, his, his crop. He'd be able to, to reap a harvest expecting that something will come back, expecting that there will be growth. There would be hope in the life of that strawberry farmer. He would, he would realize that now, not only is it possible for him to grow, it, he's, he's able to do that, and he can expect returns because 
He's in the right soil. He's been transplanted. He's, he's in the place where growth is possible. In the Christian life, growth is only possible if you are planted firmly in the soil of God's grace. And that's what the Apostle Paul is talking to us about in this passage. He is, he is giving Titus, he's giving the people of Crete the grounds for all of the commandments that he's just given in the first chapter or two chapters of, of Titus. And, and right before this passage, in, in the first 10 verses of Titus 2, he gives a whole lot of commands. And I don't know about you, but if I have a whole lot of commands and I feel like I'm not able to do it, it's frustrating. And there's no hope. And so what Paul is saying is, yes, we are called to live for God, but if you think you can live for God without being grounded in God's grace, it's not going to work. Instead, he says, I want to show you that grace has appeared, and it doesn't just bring salvation, it brings us the ability to grow, and it gives us hope for growth. And that's what this passage is all about, is, is the motivation for the Christian life, the ability to live the Christian life, the enabling to live for God, and hope to live for God. Paul, he has corrected the church in Crete because they had, there have been people that have crept into the church, and they said that, you know what, we are living pure lives by doing certain things to be acceptable to God. Now, you ever, you ever been around people like that in the Christian walk? I think we're tempted to do that. Before we think of those people, let's realize that we're all tempted to try to earn God's favor, to add to God's favor in some way. And so the Apostle Paul says, no, that is not the good news and ultimately, it leads people away from God. It leads people to be defiled. We saw in the, in the previous verses in chapter 2. If you try to make yourself pure by living for God on your own efforts, if you try to be acceptable to God on your own efforts, your own merits, you will actually end up being defiled. If you think you become a Christian by doing good works, you're going to stay defiled and you'll never be pure. And yet, if Jesus makes you pure, then then you truly, everything you do can be from that pure motive of living for God. And now Paul, in, this, in these verses in chapter two, he goes from behavior to the theology that motivates that behavior, the theology that, that enables that behavior. And before you, you kind of recoil at the word theology, theology is really just the study of God and what we received in God, who God is and who we are. And what we find here. In this passage, the motive for why we pursue loving God, the enabling for pursuing loving God, and hope for loving God. What we, what we have here is past grace that we've received in Jesus Christ. We have future grace, and we have present enabling grace. And, and that's what we need in the Christian life. If you're to live a life that is pleasing to God, and you try to do it outside of the grace of God, you will fail every time and be just as frustrated as that strawberry farmer. Well, in the Arctic Circle. But here is the grounds for any and all growth and fruit in the Christian life. It begins, and Paul tells us very simply this critical truth in verse 11. He says something simple. He says we're saved by grace. That's the, the first truth. If you want to begin to live in a way that's pleasing to God, if you want to know how can I live a life that's godly, how can I actually be made right? Yes, God has saved you. He has, he has justified you. He has 
He has completely forgiven all your sins if you place your faith in him. And yet now he actually calls us to become more and more like him. But the only way to do that is starting with this foundational truth that we're saved by grace. And that's what Paul says, tell the people in Crete what they need to hear most is not some highfalutin doctrine. What they need is this wonderful, deep doctrine that we're saved by God's grace. And so that's what he tells them. He says, for the grace of God has appeared. That for there, he's pointing back to the first 10 verses of chapter two. The very grounds that we can obey God, the the, the very basis for the obedience to God, it's for the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation Bringing salvation to to each and every kind of people, to to all people, grace has appeared and it brings salvation and we need to be rescued from our sins. We need to be rescued from ourselves. Paul gives this sound doctrine, that's the reason, the cause, the motivation is that the grace of God has appeared. And I love that word for appeared. It's the same word that we get the word epiphany. And it's this glorious appearing. You know, you can think of it in a dark night, a dark and cloudless light, and then suddenly over the horizon, the sun rises and the light shines into darkness and it changes everything. It enables you to see. If you're, if you're trying to find your way in the dark, it's difficult. But when the sun rises, you can see clearly. And now he uses the same kind of word for the appearance of the grace of God. And, and that appearance is not this hypothetical thing or not just an idea. It's an appearance of a person that he's referring to. What he's saying is the grace of God has appeared in the person of Jesus Christ. When you think of Jesus, we're meant to think of Jesus as the very grace, the very favor of God, the unmerited favor of God that's now appeared to us. The sun has risen and we see the grace of God. And and the grace of God that he is talking about is not abstract. It's not a force. It's, It's the very person of God acting personally on our behalf in the person of Jesus Christ for us. The grace of God has appeared as the person and work of Jesus. Unlike the lie that the people of Crete were believing is that they were were believing in Zeus and, and he was just a mere man who was raised and deceived and manipulated his way until the fact that they elevated him by what he did and called him God. God says, no, no, it's not like that with Jesus. Jesus was sent from me, and he's appeared. My grace is appearing to you in reality. And Jesus coming and bringing salvation for mankind that's not dependent on our works or our ability to appease him. And that's really good news. What we most desperately need, all of humanity needs, is to be delivered from our slavery to sin. We need to be saved from the punishment that we deserve. You see, we rebelled against God and the punishment, the just punishment for our sin is death. And so you have, if you have not placed your faith in Jesus, we have this death sentence hanging over you. And yet the grace of God appears, not because you've done something to earn God's favor, because you never can. 
And, and the grace of God has appeared to each and every person here has put their faith and their trust in Jesus. And that's what we need to look back and remember. That's the basis for any obedience is that, wait a minute, he's changed me. He's saved me. I don't belong to the devil anymore. I, I no longer have this death sentence hanging over me. I don't have to say yes to sin. I, those, that power has been broken. The grace of God has appeared. The sun has shined. I can find the way now because he has made the way. And it's not out of works or effort. It's putting our faith and trust in his grace that has appeared in the person the work of Jesus. Grace has saved us. And then the second thing that, that Apostle Paul reminds Titus of is this, this foundational truth is we're saved by grace. If you want to live in a way that's pleasing to God, you want to be more like Jesus, remember you're saved by grace. You didn't do it. You didn't begin it. And then also you don't continue it. You're trained by grace. We're trained by grace is the second foundational truth that we see in, in chapter in verse 12 there is that we're trained by God's grace. The good news, we're, we're saved by grace? Hold that jewel up and look at it and then, and then turn it and see that, oh, it doesn't stop. It's not just one-sided. This is multifaceted. God's grace doesn't just save us. Jesus didn't just come to save us. He came to transform us and to make us into his image. And he does that and he trains us by his grace. He says in, in, in verse 12, training us to renounce all ungodliness and worldly passions, to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age. That gives us hope that God can enable us and train us by his grace to say no to the things that we feel like we're stuck in. You ever, you ever feel like you're stuck in the same old patterns of sin, the same patterns of disobedience to God, the same things that you're just dissatisfied with? I think that's a healthy dissatisfaction that we have as Christians, but there's something unhealthy about it if it remains there and we remain hopeless and we stop looking to the grace of God to change us. Because what God is about doing by his grace is incrementally training us to say no. There's hope. You can say, maybe you are stuck in these patterns that you feel like you can't get out of. What we need is the grace of God to train us to say no. You know, don't move on from grace. We can move forward in grace. And the reason why he's talking about renouncing ungodliness and worldly passions, you remember that the island of Crete, he says, they're evil beasts, they're lazy gluttons. And it's a great descriptor. Evil beasts, lazy gluttons, they're deceivers, they're liars. They're self-indulgent. And, and we talked about in the opening to Titus that, that really that's not unfamiliar setting for us because that's the territory we find ourselves in the world. You see, it's not popular to say no to your desires. Look at the world around you. The world is full of people who don't say no to their desires. They just do what they want. They live how they want. They live trying to fulfill their every desire in an ungodly way, trying to find satisfaction and fulfillment in, in everything else except for God. And, and Paul says, no, grace is not like that. Grace trains us to renounce that, to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions. And, 
And, you know, as Christians, it might be a little easy for us to recognize ungodliness, you know, things that are patently, blatantly sinful. Now, I'm not talking about the taboos that maybe you were raised and it's, it's wrong to dress a certain way or talk a certain way or do certain things. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about it's easy to look and see where the Scripture calls sin is clearly sin. So we can say no to, we know to say no to that. But the, the thing that we need help with is saying no to those worldly passions, Because you know what? Those desires, those passions remain in us and we need the grace of God to help us to even recognize that. But the hope is, he says, the grace of God, it trains us to renounce ungodliness. Christians saved by grace are trained by grace. A person can't claim to have been saved by grace if they're not also a student of grace. So let me ask you, are you a student of God's grace? Are you saying, hey, Jesus, because you have been so gracious to me, because you have enabled me, where, where do I need to say no? God, relying on your grace, not to earn effort, I mean, to earn favor for you by my efforts, not to be more acceptable in your sight, where, God, thank you by your grace, I'm already totally accepted. So that frees me up to say, okay, now, Jesus, show me where I need to change. Are you asking that question of yourself? The witness of saying no to sin would have been loud and clear on the island of Crete. And let me tell you, the witness of saying no to sin and no to worldly passions and desires, it will be loud and clear here. If the people around you in the world that you live in, your school, your work, wherever, your neighborhood, if they see that, wait a minute, they're not living for the same desires. They're living to please the one who has made them pleasing to God. That's transformative. God rescued us to change us. You know, think about it. Jesus has rescued us from the muck and mire I love that, that imagery in, in Pilgrim's Progress where he is, he's going through the slew of despair and, and he gets picked up. He gets pulled out of the mire and the muck. And imagine then wanting to go back to that. You know, from choking on the vomit of our own desires, that makes us want to not go back to that old way of living. That's how grace trains us. Says, no, no, you, you've been set free from that. Why would you go back to that vomit? Don't, don't go back like a dog returns to its own vomit and see that the grace of God freed you. You don't have to try to be filled with that stuff that's never gonna fill you up. You don't have to try to be satisfied with those worldly desires that are never gonna satisfy you. See and receive the grace of God that satisfies you. Jesus satisfies you. He alone satisfies you. So don't turn to these other things and that way the grace of God trains us. Now, sometimes that word, by the way, it sometimes also means disciplining. And actually, more often than not, in the New Testament, it's translated as disciplining. We don't like that word. But sometimes it's hard to say no. And, and so God has to show us where we need to deny ourselves. And there's a painful sometimes denial that we, we have to learn. And he says, but that's God's grace. Maybe you have fallen in sin. Maybe you have given yourself over to something that God has delivered you from and you're experiencing the pain of that. That is God's grace meant to train you to not want to do that anymore. Now don't don't wallow in guilt and condemnation, but say, wait a minute, that doesn't lead me closer to God. That leads me away from him. And so in that way, grace can train us negatively, if you will, 
But what, what really Paul's doing here is he's in a sense just rephrasing what Jesus told us and all of his disciples in Luke 9. Luke 9, Jesus said, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, say no to his own desires. And then he says, and take up his cross daily and follow me. And, and by the way, a cross is not a pleasant thing. There's a dying. There's getting nailed to the cross. There is pain. And yet, Jesus says, it's by renouncing ungodliness, renouncing these worldly passions, that you can know the joy of following me, that he continues to set us free by his grace. Grace teaches us to not seek satisfaction in worldly desires and see that the end of those things is death and to reject that. And the grace of salvation is not just seen in turning from a life of living for self, it's also seen in, in turning to live for God now. So he says, it doesn't just train us to renounce ungodliness. Look at the second half of verse 12. He says, it also trains us to what? To live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. There is hope. There is hope in your life that God it will enable you and train you to live self-controlled, upright, righteous, and godly lives now. You know, so often, and, and, and it is true, we will never be completely perfect and free from sin in this life. However, let's not believe the fallacy that says we will never grow, or we can't grow, or we won't change, or we won't be different, because God says, no, my grace, it teaches you, and you know what? You can be godly. You can grow in righteousness. You can you can be living in this self-controlled way. If you're frustrated with your lack of growth, meditate daily on the grace of God that brings salvation and that's teaching you and training you every step of the way. Say, you know what, God? Thank you for showing me that that way of living is worthless. And God, thanks for showing me that living for you is ultimately satisfying. Jesus, thank you that because you saved me, I want to now live for you. God, let me just set aside every weight and every sin that so easily entangles and let me now run with endurance the race that is before me because, because you've given me this race. And Paul goes on to explain that, that kind of living, it's, he doesn't just teach us, train us, he gives us hope in grace. Grace saves us. Grace trains us. And then the third foundational truth we see in this passage is that we have hope in grace. We have hope in grace. The Christian life is not meant to be this always sorrowful experience. We're meant to say, you know what? We've got problems, but you know, I'm growing in grace Slowly, step by step, sometimes it's hard to see. That's why we need to tell each other, hey, you know what? I see where you're growing because sometimes we don't see that and we need to experience that hope. We need to see that there's hope to grow in grace. And so we need to encourage one another as long as it's called today. We need to encourage each other. Hey, I see the grace of God at work in you. Hey, you know what? You know, you used to always be angry and now you're only angry half the time. <laughs> it's kind of a backward way of saying things. But hey, you know what? We can say you're growing. You're not angry all the time anymore. Man, God's at work in you. We encourage each other in our growth in grace because we need to see that we have hope in grace. And we're living right now with this, in this waiting room. And I, and I don't know about you, but I hate waiting. 
I hate waiting. I hate lines. I don't, I don't like to wait. You know, when, when we drive to go on vacation, I don't like the, the process between when we leave the house and getting to vacation, period. I don't like that. It's not pleasant, especially if it's a long drive. Any drive over three hours, I feel like I'm going to crawl out of my skin. I, I, I have issues. Some people I hear like to drive, and you're weird, but I love you, and we need you because you need to drive me places. So um, I, I, I love that other people like to drive. I hate driving. I, I have issues. I don't like being cooped up in one place and, and not going anywhere, and, and it just, I don't know why. I can't take it, and it's like sitting still very long. You know, I wasn't very good at it as a kid. They didn't have the ADHD diagnosis when I was a kid, but boy, I would have been off the charts. I could never sit still. I was always tapping and getting in trouble for tapping and doing different things and moving around and stuff. I don't like sitting. I don't like waiting. None of us really love waiting. You know, if, if I'm heading to vacation, the only thing that keeps me going is knowing that I'm going to get on vacation if I keep driving. You know, if I, if I, if I persist... I'll get there. There's hope that there'll be enjoyment at the other end of this drive that I hate. And my kids are great. It's not because I've got six kids in the car, but you know, when you get eight people in a car together for eight hours, things happen. (laughs) People are tempted, and, and normally it's me who's tempted. So I've learned things to cope on the way there, but I don't like waiting for my blessed hope there. And yet, I, I drive with this expectation that I'm going to get there. You know, the kids are not as bad as me. Like, are we there yet? And I'm like, are we there yet? Please. Sometimes life can feel that way. And yet, there's hope at the, there's hope at the end. At the end of life or whenever Jesus returns, there's hope. Because you know what? Jesus will return and it is a blessed hope. It is a joyful hope. We're not meant to be angry in this life and ruin the day that we got in the car this life. We say, hey, we're heading somewhere. We're, we're on the way. And every day we're closer. Every day we're closer to the glorious hope. One way or another. He says we're waiting for our blessed hope. This is not, um, you know, we're just twiddling our thumbs. This is an eager, an expectation, a, a longing, a looking for. Grace gives us hope that's sure. Why? Because he saved us, because we know he's at work in us, and because we know he saved us and he's at work in us, we know that one day he'll completely deliver us and we have hope. And that's good news. And what is this hope that he talks about? He says, the appearing, so appearing Happens twice in this passage, in a very short, the epiphany, this appearance of Jesus that's brought salvation, that's inaugurated our grace that we've received. And then we're waiting for even more grace. We're waiting for the the second appearance, the second epiphany, the, the great appearance of the glory of our great God and Savior. So, when Jesus comes back, he was, he was veiled in human flesh when he appeared, and it was glorious. The grace of God appeared. It brought salvation, and the effects were 
world-changing, life-altering for all of humanity, and yet it's going to be even better. He says we have the, the great glory of the, our great God. Jesus is no longer going to veil himself in the same way. Now, he'll always remain human, which is really just mind-boggling, but he will no longer veil his glory. And we once, one day, we will see the full glory of Jesus and all of his beauty and all of his majesty and, and all of his splendor. And that's how we're to wait, saying, I know it. This is sure, and I have hope. I can get through each day because I know where I'm heading. I know where I'm going, and I know who I get to be with and see. You see, in the Garden of Eden, man was separated from the glory of God, separated from fellowship with God. And Jesus, he saved us so that he can make us more and more like him so that one day we could be reunited with God. The ultimate hope that we have is God himself. So we have hope in the grace of God. And a guy from a long time ago, in the first couple hundred years of Christianity, his name is John Chrysostom, or John of the Cross, and he said, for nothing is more blessed and more desirable than that appearing. Words are not able to represent it. The blessings thereof surpass our understanding. Do you realize that? Do you realize that we have this hope that is far greater than our most wonderful understanding. What God's grace began in sending his son to redeem a people for himself will one day be completed when Jesus returns in all the brightness of his eternal glory. And that is good news. You know why else is good news? Because in this waiting period, it's hard. There is suffering. There is pain. There is hardship, there is sickness, there is sorrow, there is loss. Sometimes the car ride, the journey there is not pleasant. And yet what he says is we have a blessed hope. And that's, that's part of the good news of the gospel of the grace of Jesus Christ is that he didn't come just to, to save us and leave us. He came to save us, to make us more like him, and then to finally and ultimately deliver us. Hallelujah! He's going to set us free. No more sorrows, no more suffering, no more sins, no more tears, no more temporary delight. One day we get to be with Jesus, to be back where we belong with God as humans in the presence of our maker. That's an awesome thing to look forward to. And that is the grace that sustains us. Grace trains us and it sustains us. He will keep us faithful to the end and we know that we surely will be delivered and it's that expectation not only of God to be at work in us because he saved us. So we have this, this always looking back to his salvation and always looking forward. We don't just have that faith that he saved us. We know that he's, he's at work in us now in the present. So we have the past. We have the present grace. And we also have future grace. And, and grace is what enables us to live the whole Christian life. And in the Christian life, what the Apostle Paul is telling Titus, he's telling them to remind them that we're supposed to always be doing that, looking both ways. Always be looking both ways. 
verse 14, tells us why we have hope and grace. So it talks about the future hope that we have in verse 13. And then in 14, it looks back again. And it says, who gave himself for us, talking about Jesus, gave himself for us, already has happened to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. When I was younger, I can't remember my exact age, partially because I was in so many accidents when I was a kid, but I, I remember going across, across the street on Fox Drive in Winchester, Virginia, and I was going across the street, and I looked both ways, and then I looked this way, and then I stepped out, and I was hit by a car. It slammed into my hip. It threw me far in the air. It broke bones. I learned something important. You know, I don't just look both ways once. It's important to look both ways several times, at least twice, right? So I'm also teaching right now my second child to drive. And um, it's a terrifying thing as a parent because um, when you have a driver and my oldest son, he's, he's learned to drive mostly and he's a competent driver, but at times... He'll look this way, look back, and then, you know, you, hey, 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 you got to look again, you got to look again. <laughs> and, you know, when I, when I stepped out in the street, you know, I looked this way. I saw no cars were coming. I looked this way. Okay, no cars are coming. And then I, I, I must not have, I don't remember, but I must not have looked back to see the, the woman who's flying around the corner. Now, it was her fault. She was going too fast for that road. But if I had looked back, it, it would have made a big difference. And, and Paul is saying, don't move on from, from that in the Christian walk. Titus, the, the church needs to hear in Crete. And I think God would have us here as well. Don't ever move on from the grace of God. And think that somehow you've grown more mature. And so you no longer need that teaching. As if what you need is something more profound. And what he's saying here is you can't get more profound and looking forward to the hope that we have, and yet still looking back and having assurance that anchor that lies beyond the veil of his salvation, that he has saved us, he's given us himself for us. And so we're always looking forward and looking back and looking forward and looking back. That's how we're to live the Christian life. It's the long-awaited redemption the psalmist spoke about in Psalm 130. Psalm 130, the psalmist says, Israel, hope in the Lord for with the Lord there is steadfast love, and with him is plentiful redemption. It says, and he will redeem Israel from all his iniquities. Here's the good news. Paul's telling us, God's telling us in verse 14, he has redeemed us from all iniquities. Same wording there. He has redeemed us from all lawlessness, all iniquities. The hope of ages, the hope of Israel, the hope of all humanity has come. He's redeemed us. Now, the word redeemed means he's bought us back. That means we belonged somewhere else. We were owned by the God of this world. We were enslaved to sin. We, we could not say no to our own desires. And we must constantly in the Christian life be looking forward to the hope that we have that he's come back. He's going to fully redeem us. But you know what? He's already set us free. So Paul's doing that. He's looking forward. He's looking back. He's looking forward. He's looking back. And he's redeemed us. He's bought us back. It was effective. He's accomplished something definite for us. You have, Christian, you have been redeemed. Don't believe the lie that you still belong 
to the devil and you can't say no to sin. You've been redeemed from lawlessness. That's, that's why he gave himself. And he willingly, be affected by that. It says he gave himself. No one forced him. Yes, the Father sent Jesus, but Jesus willingly laid down his life for us. We're meant to be affected by that. We didn't deserve that. We don't deserve it. We don't deserve the grace of Jesus to give himself for us. We didn't deserve him redeeming us. We had only earned his wrath. We had only earned punishment. And yet, he gave himself for us to buy back those who were the very enemies of God. We who were enemies of God, he bought us back. And he gave himself for that reason. Not only that, I love the second half of that. It says, and to purify for himself. His death was effective not just to redeem us, but to make us pure. Now, we've been made pure in God's sight in, in the meaning that we've been completely made just in God's sight. So as if we have never sinned, he's applied all of the purity and righteousness of Jesus to us. So in one sense, we've been made completely pure. And yet, he also died so that we would be functionally, literally pure in our lives. He, he gave himself so that we would be made more and more like him day by day. I love it. It was what was prophesied by Ezekiel. It's been fulfilled in Jesus. Look, look in Ezekiel 36, 25. Here is the prophecy that Ezekiel received from God when God is telling him, he says, I will sprinkle clean water on you. I love that imagery because Jesus talks about giving us the water that will, that, will, that will never run out, but washing us clean with his word. Ezekiel says, I will sprinkle clean, God says in Ezekiel, I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean from all your uncleanness and from all your idols, not some of them, all your idols I will cleanse you. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in all my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. Did you notice the obedience comes at the end of all that? <laughs> it's not the cause of all that. What's the cause? Oh, it's God making us clean. It's him delivering us from our idols. It's him giving us a new heart, giving us a new spirit, new desire, new enabling grace. Him removing this stony heart that couldn't hear from God, giving us a heart of flesh that now we are soft and we can respond to God. And then when you experience conviction, that means you have a heart of flesh. Not only that, we have the Holy Spirit, the very Spirit of God, the same Spirit that raised Jesus Christ from the dead dwells within us, quickening or enlightening our mortal bodies. And then at the end of that, in response to grace, it enables us to walk in all of God's ways. What does that mean? Well, God created us to live in obedience with him, not because he wanted us to be bored, not because God wanted us to be unhappy, but because obeying God is actually where we experience the most delight. 
The garden prior to the fall was a place of utmost delight and pleasure and enjoyment in the presence of God himself because there was no disobedience. And so when God calls us to obey him, it's not because he's trying to withhold something from us. It's because he wants to give himself in all of his fullness and for us to experience his grace. So Paul says, he didn't just die to redeem you. He died to, to redeem you from all lawlessness, to make you pure, and to make you a people for his own possession. And I love that because elsewhere it says that we are his treasured possession. We're a people for his. Jesus isn't begrudgingly okay with you. He died to buy you, to make you pure, so that you would be his treasured possession. He delights in you now by his grace, by God's grace. He delights in you. And because of Jesus, your very identity, your very purpose has been changed. You're not defiled anymore. That gives you hope. We've been made clean. That gives us hope. We can live with him. We're his possession. If you don't find hope in that, there's no hope. We're his possession. What does that mean? No one can take us from his hand. Man, that's good news. There's hope there. You know, no matter, no matter how awful I've been, I have hope that, God, thank you that no one, I'm your possession, no one can snatch me from your hand because who's more powerful than you, God? And now you've made me alive to you so that I want to live for you, Lord, to be zealous, a zealot for good works. Do you believe that? Do you believe, do you live in the good that you're his treasured possession? That he treasures you as his own? I was reading Brian Chapel about this verse and he was saying, the attitude of the redeemer towards the redeemed is that we are precious to him despite the sin that required such sacrifice from him. Read that again. The attitude of the redeemer towards the redeemed is that we are precious to him, here's grace, despite the sin that required such sacrifice from him. These words breathe the grace that characterizes our God and should inspire us to do the good works that please our Savior. If you really understand what Jesus has done for you personally, it gives you a zeal to live for him now. I don't want to be encumbered by those things. I don't want to live like I used to live. I don't want to return to my vomit. I don't want to, I don't want to go back to those old ways. I don't want to be satisfied with anything less. Lord Jesus, let me be a zealot for you. His death was for the Cretan believers. It's for us today. He treasures us. He'll reward us. He fully rescues. He'll make all things new. And that hope allows us to say no to lesser satisfactions and to say yes to living for him. Our problem is in battling sin is not that we have too strong of a desire for sin. It's that we have too little desire for Jesus. It's that we see his grace too small. Lastly, Paul says, don't, don't let anybody tell you not to preach this way, Titus. Titus, 
I want you to read this letter to the church and Titus, I want the church to know that don't let anybody else confuse you with anything else. Don't let anybody else take you away from declaring these things. And so what is the, the other foundational truth that we see is that we teach or we declare his grace. That's what we're meant to do. As a believer, we don't declare our own efforts. We don't declare our own abilities. What do we declare? We declare his grace. And, and he's, he's emphatic. He's forceful about this. He tells Titus, he says, he says, declare these things. Titus, your primary job is to declare grace. Exhort people to God's grace. To turn from a life of sin. To follow him. And by the way, that never ends in the Christian life. I don't, I don't know anyone in the Christian life who's totally sanctified. Do you? This is essential for all of life. We never move on from it. Declare these things. Exhort. We need the grace of God day by day. I love what Jerry Bridges used to say. He's passed on now to be with Jesus. And how amazing is that? But he talks about our need to preach the gospel of the grace of God to ourselves day by day. We need to stay there. To deepen our understanding of his, what do we need? We need to deepen our understanding, but deepen our understanding of his grace. And, and Paul says, declare these things. Exhort. Don't just talk about it. Exhort everybody else. That's, that's the, the main content of your exhortation to obedience is because of the grace of God. And you need to never leave obedience by itself. You never, never need to leave the grace of God either. And then he says something else, which you don't see often in the Bible. He says, rebuke with all authority. So, Declare these things, exhort in these things, and then rebuke. Correct people when they're hoping in themselves. Correct people who think we can move on from grace to something far deeper. He says, rebuke those ideas with all authority. And then he says something that must have been encouraging to Titus, who was reading this letter to the church in Crete. It was Titus's introductory letter, remember, to the church in Crete. It's not that Titus didn't know these things, but the church in Crete needed to know what his mandate was. And so he's reading this, and he says, here's my mandate. I'm going to declare these things, and I'm going to exhort these things. And not only that, I'm going to rebuke with all authority. And then he says, let no one disregard you. Don't let people think. That God's grace is unimportant or God's grace is remedial. If you're a Christian here, I asked at the beginning, what, what stirs your soul to live for Jesus? What motivates you to want to avoid the path of sin and, and living for Jesus? Uh, what, what inspires you to say no to ungodliness, to say yes to living for God? If you find yourself trying hard to earn acceptance or favor from God based on your performance, it'll be short-lived because you're going to fail. You're going to become discouraged. You're going to realize you can never be confident in God if your efforts are the basis for your acceptance either in the past or the future. If your souls are not set aflame with the ever-burning embers that come only from the throne of God's grace, you're going to burn out. If you're not a Christian, what motivates you in life? Fleeting success, it's going to end. There is no successful person from 200 years ago who is alive today. 
Is it fame? You're going to be forgotten. Is it fortune? You're all, it's all going to go away in the end. You won't get what you most desperately need, peace with God through money. You know, maybe maybe you, you, you're a little better than that. Maybe you think, you know what? No, I'm going to live altruistic. I'm going, to, I'm going to make the world a better place. I'm going to leave the world a better place. Well, really, how's that worked out for past generations? Now, it's good that we want to do good works. We're supposed to be zealous for good works, but don't think that somehow our good works will save ourselves or anybody around us. They're meant to point to the ultimate salvation, the grace of God that enabled us to do the good works. But the world is corrupt. It needs to be saved from itself, not just be a better, more corrupt self. If you're not a believer here, you need to be rescued to redeemed. Receive the grace of God that saves you, makes you new, that gives you peace with him, that forgives your sins and rescues you from being a slave to a life of sin. If you are a believer here, you need to know that you've been redeemed, that he's at work in you, that there's hope to enable you to live for him because of what he's done in the past, because of what he's doing currently in the future, enabling you to say no, training you to say yes, and also there's hope in the future because you belong to him. It's sure. And all, all that Titus is to tell them is it's with all authority because this is God's word. It's not the mere teaching of men that he talked about in the first part of Titus. And so he says, Titus, don't be timid about it. Do it with all authority. Don't be intimidated by those who claim to have this higher, deeper knowledge that people in Crete were doing at the time. Don't be intimidated by Christians or people who are well-meaning say, you know what, I know a better way. And we just need these six steps to a better you. Or we just need these, these, these things that we're supposed to do that's, and I've finally discovered the key. No, Paul says, the key here with all authority, it's the grace of God, past, present, future. And no believer's mastered it yet. Everyone needs to hear this. None of us are above it. We, we proclaim him. We proclaim the appearance of God's grace. How sweet the sound of saving grace. Christ died for me. One day we'll be with him again. May we all grow in his grace as we wait with hope, knowing he's relocated us from a destitute, barren land, and he's put us in a good place. He's brought us up into his country. He's given us a place in his kingdom. He's he set us free and he enabled us to grow now. And we have hope to bear fruit here now and ultimately in the future. Amen? Better than any strawberry crop, as much as you might like strawberries. Let's pray. Father, thank you.